This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the accommodating Simon Belanger. The reason you get that accolade this morning, I think I texted you on Monday. I was like, oh, by the way, yeah, you know how we're supposed to record tomorrow? I'm I'm going to Mexico. I probably should have told you that, but uh, we, 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 can work, we can work around this, right? Yeah. It's okay. You thought you had told me, so that, I did that, think I you. had told you. Yeah. I think I'll give I, you some points there. Okay. Sounds good. Well, today's show, we're going to go through a listener question right out of the gate. I'm going to talk about a very surprising statistic after going through the data about what happened in the market last year, you know, globally in the US and in Canada as well. And then we're going to talk about the 70 20 10 rule. Simone, you have a new position as well. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it brand new or is it like last month? Yeah. Uh, I would say like a couple of days ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I would say pretty pretty fresh. Yeah. Okay. So this is this is news to me too as well. Yeah. So stick around to the end. That'll be the last one. Simone's going to talk about a new. Yeah, a little position. preview though. Like if you're from Alberta, you'll probably like that position. But uh... <laughs> they probably already own it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh. Simone, we have a listener question that you wanted to talk about from jointci.com. Go ahead and go to jointci.com to support the show. We do prioritize questions there. You can see the podcast on video and you get our monthly portfolio updates. You want to kick us off here? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, like you said, we do try to answer all the questions we get on jointci. And when they're a bit longer, I do like to grab them and answer them on the podcast or if I think there's really good value for other listeners, I'll grab it and answer it on the podcast. So the question is from Tef Ramsey. The question is, I have a question about U-Bill and C-Bill. So these are Treasury Bill ETF. The first one, U-Bill, is a U.S. Treasury Bill ETF. The second one, C-Bill, is the Canadian Treasury Bill ETF. Tef said, I know it's an ETF that's backed by Uncle Sam, so we're referring to the U.S. one, and also a Treasury bill that have a maturity date. Essentially, how does a Treasury bill ETF truly work? Said that he's read multiple times and doesn't fully understand it, so I'll try to demystify that. So there's a couple of components. So there's the ETF components and also the difference between Treasury bonds, notes, and bills. So Treasury bonds, we'll start off with that. These are the longest duration and will last between 20 and 30 years. Interests on these are called coupons and they will be paid every six months. Treasury notes are kind of in between Treasury bills and Treasury bonds. So these typically go from two and 10 years in duration. Treasury notes will pay the their interests coupons every six months as well. Now, Treasury bills, so the one that he's referencing, have less than a year in duration. So it could be a couple months up to a year. The other differences with this is that treasury bills won't have interest coupons like I mentioned every six months. Instead, they'll be sold at a lower value than what their par value is. So for example, if you buy a treasury bill that matures in one year and it pays 5.2% interest, you'd buy it at $950 and then a year later, you'd get $1,000 back, therefore making that uh, that interest. Now, a treasury bill ETF would fall into that category of a money market fund, which buys treasury bills. When the treasury bills comes to maturity, the money is rolled over into new treasury bills, and investors are paid a distribution based on the interest accrued, typically on a monthly basis. Now, in terms of the inner workings of the ETFs, I'm not 100% sure how it works, but I'm assuming it's similar to how how stock ETF works. There's all different kinds of ETFs. Obviously, we've learned with uh, in recent weeks, there was also the Bitcoin ETF, uh, spot Bitcoin ETF that was approved in the US. Now, my assumption would be that if there is new money coming into the ETF, so new inflows, the ETF will buy treasury bills to then create more shares. If money goes out, then the ETF would need to sell treasury bills and reduce the number of outstanding shares by this corresponding amounts. So that would be, in a nutshell, how these treasury bill ETFs work. And these are 
much more popular instruments uh, now in this whole broad theme of money market ETFs. You know, it's like these fixed income, T-bills, GICs, money market ETFs were very hot uh, for as products over the last 12 months and, and probably since rates got to a respectable amount in terms of getting a yield. And uh, not a lot of people know how they work <laughs> like in terms of- No, like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't mean operationally because you and I don't even really know how these things, how the you know the actual plumbing and the inner workings of how they operate the ETFs. That's that's not what I mean because I, I think it's a lot, that's that's another complicated subject in itself, and you know you don't really have to know that. But you know the actual asset that you're that you're owning, like how they work, just the same way we stress yeah. so much about how you know you have to know the inner workings of a company to be qualified to be a shareholder. That's like kind of your job, and with these products, I. I hold that same theory for for investors to be at least aware of what they're doing and and and, w- and why they're doing it. Yeah, exactly. At least the inner holdings, like obviously, you know what you need to know, like this, the pitch or the elevator pitch you're giving to someone to invest in these would just be like, look, they are backed by, you know, the Canadian or the U.S. government. They are short term, which means that they won't fluctuate with, uh, you know, longer term rates. So there won't be any capital fluctuation. It'll just basically because they roll over so frequently, it'll be based mostly on what the ongoing rate is for the uh, Federal Reserve in the U.S. and in Canada. So I think that's in a nutshell and it's traded on the, the stock market as an ETF. That's what it is. Let's talk about what I'm calling a stock picker's market. So, Simone, last year, I think the narrative, and myself included, guilty of of this narrative, that the consensus on the street and the consensus among the investing community has been that if you didn't own the Magnificent Seven, those seven large cap tech companies that just dominated the, the market last year, you know, names like NVIDIA, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Meta, Apple. Am I forgetting? I think Tesla, I think. Uh, I think. Yeah. Just, just think big tech. <laughs> big big tech. tech. Yeah. Big yeah. tech. The like trillion dollar yeah. uh, and and almost trillion dollar tech companies that, you know, rule the US market these days by market cap weighting. It has been and the narrative and, and now consensus that if you didn't own them, or didn't just broad basket the U.S. market. There's no way you outperformed it. There's just there's just 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 no way. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit. And while they those companies, of course, had a banner year, they had a year to remember. It's just simply not true that there wasn't a lot of other companies that had monster years. And so I ran a screener. I went onto FinChat.io. I went on the screener. By the way, this is 100% free. I set the screener criteria of at least 10 billion in market cap. So I wanted it to be that because like there are large caps that have done well. So over 10 billion in market cap and they returned in the last 12 months, at least 25%. So 25% or more during that time frame. There are 181 US listed stocks that meet that criteria, which is far more than I was expecting. So, you know, that's why a lot of stuff went up, right? And I just ran the screen again because I was curious for like, let's, let's now include US and Canada. So now that number is 191. If you do globally, 250 stocks globally are over that 10 billion in market cap and had more than 25% returns that year, like, you know, AKA beating the market. And so it's actually not even really about the screen. It's, it's about doing the math for yourself. When, so, when, so, like when the, when the screener is so easy to use and available, like busting these kind of narratives and things that, that people just comfortably say on the street versus like actual math and performance and, and, and doing that for yourself is like more powerful than, than the actual narrative. And the reason I think that that's important is investors like follow herds and they just say what's, 
they just start saying things that are, uh, you know, maybe not even actually true because everyone's saying it. It's like, you know, you can't get fired for buying, you know, Intel, HP, Dell back in the day. Those have been not, <laughs> you know, not fantastic stocks to own over the last two decades. But like you, you couldn't go wrong with owning them. Uh, you know, you couldn't lose your job if you were buying them for clients because everyone was doing it, right? And if everyone's saying something and everyone's doing something, that's actually probably a good time to to take a look and and do the actual work instead of just following the crowd. Yeah, yeah. And I, you can go like there's some obvious trends, but one that comes to mind is, and there's still some issues, right, with these companies. But if you think about office real estate, there was a point, I don't know if it was about six months ago, but there was a point where the valuations were just like, so ridiculously low was so bearish it was incredible like it was everywhere and if you started a position in that even if it was a shorter term position you're just looking for the sentiment to get a little less bad yeah you probably would have made like 25 30 percent on just these office reads that yes uh longer term they may face some issues but short term the, like, you know, there was headlines everywhere, right? Like there was no one is ever going to go in the office again. San Francisco's a ghost town. You know, there's what, like 15% occupancy. I'm exaggerating, but it, you saw that everywhere. And that just goes to show that sometime going over, uh, going counter the sentiment. So being a bit more contrarian can really have some positives there. And this is your advantage as a self-directed investor, right? Especially if it, you know, you're managing your own money, you're not constrained, you don't have to answer to anyone, you don't have to send them your monthly statement and make them feel good and wine dine them. This you have ultimate flexibility and professional investors or like managing money for their clients or running a big fund, they don't want to have to deal with Telling their clients, by the way, we're going into office real estate, the most hated sector in the world right now. And maybe like in the last 10 years, I can't think of anything that was hated as much at, at that. And like what you're talking about with a catalyst, you actually don't really need much of a catalyst because it was so bearish. Like it yeah, doesn't exactly. have to, people have to just go, okay, the world's not ending and the sentiment's a lot better, right? Like, okay, maybe people should occasionally be in an office. No, I think that's a good call. Yeah, and there's a famous uh, scene in The Big Short, right? When the, uh, I think it's Michael Burry, just basically tells one of the fund investors, one of the primary fund investors, that he's shorting the housing market. And that's the opposite, right? It's a contrarian take, and the investor is just losing it because, like, why would you short the housing market? The safest market? asset like, in the world, you moron, yeah. Exactly. It's at all time highs. Like, why would you short it? Everyone's like bullish on that. So that's that kind of shows whenever everyone is in one direction or another. To me, like the more I get experience, the more it's a signal that there might be some really good investment opportunities. And sometimes you have to think a bit less in long term, right? You have to think maybe on, uh, you know, four, five, six month to one to two year period, because, you know, some office real estate, I come back to that. But, you know, I'm not sure there are a lot of them you'd want to necessarily own extremely long term. But, you know, there's always place and depends what you're looking to do. Obviously, like I know you're a long term investor. I'm mostly a long term investor. But if I do see something that's really out of whack, and I think there's a good opportunity, I'm also going to jump on it. Yeah, well said. All right, you have one here, which I think is timely as the year rolls over oh, yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, so I, I will give props to uh, Rob Carrick from the Globe and Mail. So he had a column about TFSA room when you log in on your MyCRA account. Now, the, the real issue here, it's... It's really an issue if you're very close to your contribution limit or essentially at your contribution limit from one year to the next, which I know some listeners are. I know I'm pretty sure Dan is, Dan Ken, from uh, the Thursday when we record the news and earnings. Now, when you go on your MyCRA account, you'll see the available contribution room displayed. Whenever you go, you'll see it. 
whatever time of the year. The problem is the room is based on the information that the CRE gets from financial institutions, so banks, brokerage, and so on. Uh, insurance companies sometimes too will offer some TFSAs with group uh, saving plans, and they'll have to send that information. However, they have until the end of February to do so. So some financial institution will have sent it already. Some it'll be closer to the end of February. So what you're seeing right now is just incomplete information and it can be really misleading if you're looking at that room and think that's what you have available, especially if you're really close to your contribution limit from last year. Obviously, as well, if you have like $50,000 in contribution room from last year, I think you're pretty safe to say that uh, you can invest a decent chunk of money without worrying about the penalties. Because if you do have penalties, they're pretty salty. <laughs> You'll get yeah, you'll have to pay 1% per month for the over-contribution. So if you've over-contributed, let's say $5,000, it's still 50 bucks a month uh, until you remove that contribution. So that can add up pretty quickly. So what I would say to people in these circumstances is, first of all, track all your transactions. So if you have multiple TFSA accounts, uh, you know you could have one in, with EQ Bank or a sponsor. You could have one with your, your brokerage account. Just make sure you track all the transactions action that you incurred last year reconcile that yourself and then you'll know whether you have enough room or not the other way around if you have way too many tfsa accounts you could just look at say what's new in terms of new contribution room this year the seven thousand dollar that everyone gets just put that and by doing that you should be pretty safe and apparently if you wait after the first four months of the year when uh, typically at the end of April, early May, the CRA should have all of the transaction from the previous year. So at that time, uh, you should have a pretty good idea or it should be pretty accurate of what your contribution room was as of January 1st, 2024. It's like one of those things when you first you're, you start doing your own taxes and you're like, yeah, wait, so I have to figure out what I owe you, but but you already know what I should owe you. And you're going to get mad at me if I don't pay you the right amount. So why don't you just tell me what I owe you? <laughs> yeah. like, they'll know. They'll know it in July. So yeah. they'll let you know if you didn't send the right amount. That's usually because it happened to me once where I left my old employer and I forgot one of the uh, tax tax slip, like T4 RSP slips to submit, uh, to include it. And obviously they got it eventually. So in like July or August, I got a letter from the CRA saying uh, I owed an extra, I think like five or $600 in taxes or something like that. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I, w I really wish it was just like updated live, but uh, it's not too hard to just keep track of it. Cause like once you once you set up the tracking once, then it's it's really easy, like to kind of like figure it out moving forward. But oh yeah, you you said uh, I wish it was updated live. Like I'll tell a quick story about like how the CRA like can be really archaic in doing things. So uh, everyone knows I work in pension, and some pension plans will actually allow higher earners to go over the contribution limit. It's called a compensation uh, retirement agreement. So. Uh, sorry, a retirement compensation agreement, an RCA. So it's a special arrangement that you have with the CRA. And essentially what you have to do is every money that's contributed towards there, you have to send 50% of it to the CRA and they safe keep it until the uh, person retires and starts drawing on the money and then they get the taxes and then they refund it to the employer. But that payment, you can only mail it, go in person to a big bank or fax it. <laughs> <laughs> so and you have to respect some tight deadlines at the end of the year so it's always a really big pain to make sure that they get it on time especially you know if you're trying to like you know ideally you'd think there'd be like a way to wire these amounts but no like it's really archaic the way of doing things so i'm not surprised that a lot of stuff takes a whole lot of time to be done at this CRA because i've seen it and these can be like pretty large amounts too that you have to send to the CRA. like i'm talking about like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars depending on how, how large the employer is and how large the pension plan is 
Are these people working in like an '80s Wall Street floor with no computers and no uh, <laughs> no screens, just just phone calls and e- and uh, snail mail? Like that's, that's that's all they have. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> or you like what was it like DOS or something? Microsoft yeah, yeah, DOS, DOS, like back in the day, like yeah, <laughs> ripping Lotus notes. Yeah, and if you're young, just Google it. You'll see what I mean. You're basically like you have to basically prompt commands yeah, it's to the terminal like, to work the computer. Yeah, that's it. Okay, <laughs> which is a skill in, in today's world with you know being able to actually use a terminal. Like if you're a skilled developer, you're not even like all your file management and stuff. You just type in. It's it's, it's next level yeah. watching these people. All right, let's talk about the seventy twenty ten rule for stock performance and why I think that it needs modification and and and, and my proposal for what I think actually <laughs> should uh, should be this rule based on math. So this you know kind of 70 20 10 rule for stock performance, I forget exactly who came up with it, but it's been around for a long time. It basically states that 70% of how a stock does in one year is based on how the market does global sentiment. So basically saying like Rising tides raises all ships or inversely, like how the market actually does can affect how your stock does uh, more than that individual company's performance. 20% about how that industry does. Okay. So now we're looking at like 90% of it already in, in, in the short term of how stock does is basically just based on macro and only 10% of the company's fundamentals and valuation change. And then in 10 years, you invert it and you basically say 70% of how the company does. And then the remaining 30 are based on the market and industry trends. Now, I do think that in theory that this is, this is correct. And if you look at return decomposition, it's not enough time for the fundamentals to be, to be needle moving. Uh, you know, company reports four quarters. If it's well covered, there's already estimates built, kind of built into that, and so you get some kind of glimpse of efficient market. <laughs> maybe, maybe some sort of glimpse. But in ten years, you're looking at you know mostly about the company's actual fundamentals, growth, and and performance. And in fact, revenue growth is the long term one factor that has the most impact on return decomposition. So that is sales growth. Now, I'd like to modify the rules because in my view, you have to split out fundamentals and valuations in two different buckets because valuation multiples on a company matters a lot in the short term. And 10% is, that's just, that's just not right. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why. Let's look at a real life example. Simone, these are two of the most insane looking charts of all time. And they are from none other than Meta Platforms, aka Facebook. So since December, uh, you know, so December quarter ending 2020, so Q4 of 2020, down to, uh, you know, the fall of 2022, the market cap of Meta went from around 750 billion to over 1 trillion and then proceeded to fall in one year down to around 250 billion in market cap, a third of its valuation. It then has now, since then, again, another year, rise up to nearing again 1 trillion in market cap, around 960 billion billion in market cap. So the stock dropped 76% from September 2021 to September 22 and then rose 300% in the following 12 months. Uh you know, some sort of efficient market that we have here, right? And in that time what that represents by, you know, valuation multiple is around a 29, you know, price to earnings down to a, a very low like teens and then back up to where it was before. So you had basically the multiple like get cut in third um, and then back up to what it was before. It's just, it's it's remarkable in such a short period of time. And so this is not uncommon, Simon. It's actually, it is for a mega cap like Facebook, 
it is very uncommon and and very surprising. And there's going to be some sort of business case study about this fact here, but it's more common than people think. And so I look at the 70-20-10 rule and I think the 10% on valuation and multiple changes in the short term, it's just not true. According to MSCI for global equities, in one year, 51.1% of returns come from multiple change in the, you know, so in, in that example there from, from Meta, from going like 29 times earnings to 13 times earnings. The orange is top line sales growth. So that's 37.5%. And then uh, around 11.4% comes from dividend yield. So this is for equities across the market. So you get around 10% comes from dividends, 40% return to composition comes from top line sales growth. And then the valuation change is more than half. You go out 10 years, now valuation change is only 20%. The top line sales growth is 60%. And you get 20% comes from the, the dividend yield of, of the market. So this is more in line with what reality is. And, and this study shows it with, with, with graphs. So a lot of short-term movement happens in valuation change. In 2021 through to 2022, Simone, what stocks got wrecked, would you say, during like the 2022 drawdown? Uh, just high growth stocks in general, yeah. High multiple yeah. stocks, right? Yeah. yeah, I was just gonna add, like the case of Meta, that one's a bit interesting because that was related to like their Apple opt-in privacy option where people and might the metaverse. be now. Yeah, and the metaverse. So those two things together. So the Apple thing was now users have to opt in to be tracked on their phone by an app. And then the, obviously the uh, the bets that they're making into the metaverse. Yeah, those are the, the two things that the market didn't like. Yeah. Right. And so sentiment changed rapidly and the multiple fell off a cliff during that time. So that's right. The things that got crushed were text growth stocks trading at like 40 times sales drop into 10 times sales. You know, the, the, the math alone there, if all stays equal, you lost like 75% of the, the value of the equity, right? Like, well, don't forget regional banks and uh, government bonds that are long term. <laughs> that's, we'll throw that in the basket that, of a lot of, that, a lot of shit a that went wrong. Delay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those were just delayed slightly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the most part, right? Like the one that came to mind to you first is, is right, which is those those high growthy, high multiple stocks that got wrecked. So here's my my proposed modification: sixty thirty ten, which is sixty percent how the market and sentiment are performing, thirty percent uh the sentiment on that specific stock and industry. Like my meta example there, that's going to rapidly move the multiple. So this is kind of like multiple change. And then 10% fundamentals and performance of the company financially, which is not a lot. I agree with that. Like I, I am a fundamentals investor, but I'm, but I know that there's a lot of outside factors and macro and sentiment that are going to move the stock far more than fundamentals. However, in the long term, 60% fundamentals. 30% the sentiment on that stock or industry, and only 10% the broader market and macro. So what does this do? It flips what is in and out of your control, which makes long-term investing so advantageous. If in that first 12-month example, I just said that roughly, I believe 90% of things are completely out of my control, but you flip that to the long-term, now you got 90 roughly ish percent are in my control in terms of the decision makes the decisions that I make. The game goes from everything out of your control and mostly luck to now long term, most of the results are defined by my decision making within my control, within my circle of competence. And that's what makes long term investing so advantageous. You move everything like in a Venn diagram of what's in your control versus what's out of your control all the way over into what's mostly what's in your control. 
Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's a good way to see it. And obviously, when you look at short-term uh, sentiment for a given stock, for example, or industry, may be so bad that it will like almost supersede anything else. And I think that the Meta example, or even the Office uh, real estate example, I think those are really good example where like sentiment is ex- like it's so bad. Like you see it, it's pretty obvious in hindsight, but it's pretty. If you pay attention, you can spot it pretty easily in the moment, too. You can just see, like, mainstream media has headlines on it. You, uh, Fintwit is all about it. Uh, all these different things. You, you see it happening in real time. And to me, that's always going to be the biggest cue in terms of using sentiment to my advantage. But I agree with you longer term. And that's why it's really good to uh, be a long term investor is that fundamentals, uh, kind of override that but uh as i get more experience and a bit older i definitely i think i'm going into a little bit more of a hybrid approach but still still more of a i would say probably like 80 percent more of a 80 90 long-term investor but i'm di- giving myself a little bit of flexibility if i really see some good opportunities that could be a, a shorter term and to add to that i just went on finchat and looked at totally monthly active users for Meta's family of applications. During that time, they went from around two and a half billion actives to over three billion actives. So like a gigantic portion of the the, the the population on earth. And it's like, people are still using these apps more and more and more, especially in emerging markets like India, the growth was explosive on daily active users across their, their applications, Instagram, had become a cash cow like none other and probably worth the entire market cap at that time alone. If it, it, easily, actually, if it was $250 billion market cap, Instagram was easily worth more than that entire market cap. And so you zoom out, you, you put those all together, you don't know what happened to the stock price, and you think that probably it would have performed similarly like you know, this, this growth of the users. Nope. Absolutely not. The Apple problem compounded with Zuckerberg continually letting you know he's going to spend all the free cash flow on some moonshot metaverse product. And the market says, it doesn't matter if you're growing, if you're going to incinerate all our capital, we're going to sell off the stock. So I understand both sides of the coin. And uh, it's an interesting use case study. I, I do think that there is like a really cool book that could be written about meta during that like 16 month period and just like a case study on on business and a case study on a founder CEO going gung-ho on on the capital allocation and being persistent among Wall Street and going putting his back up uh, against Wall Street yeah, I mean, you can get some really good things on the, you know, founder CEO front, especially when they like they have control over the company. You know, they have free reigns, and I'm not like, you know, I'm not a fan of Mark Zuckerberg. If you've been, uh, you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know, I've been pretty critical about him. But you have like, I'll give him props where it's due. He's definitely when he has something in mind and a vision in mind. No matter what people say, he's gonna go ahead with it, and you know. For the most part, it's worked out pretty well for him. <laughs> so I have to give him, I have to give him props. And one that comes to mind that's a bit like that that got criticized, but now a bit less is just uh, Michael Saylor in MicroStrategy buying Bitcoin and putting on the balance sheet. So he got criticized a whole lot, but he has the ability to do it. I can't remember the exact voting structure, but I think he has like, and correct me if I am wrong. If people know, I just don't have it in front of me. But I'm pretty sure he has like super shit, like you know, super voting shares where it still gives him control of the company uh, without necessarily owning more than like the 51% or owning 51% or more. Right. Yeah. And and so this is, that's the bull and the bear case for these types of companies with these kind of visionary leaders that are willing to, you know, to, to make decisions against the grain, you know, that can, that can both be a blessing and a curse. 
Yeah, and one segment I want to do in the next couple of months is, I don't know if you thought about that, but I started doing some quick calculations on the fact that the spot Bitcoin ETF got listed in the US and a lot of people were using MicroStrategy to get exposure to Bitcoin. So I've been starting to track essentially what mm. the value of the actual business is yeah. and how much... Yeah, how much has been fluctuating when you zero out? People were just out. buying MicroStrategy's balance sheet. They weren't buying the income statement. Exactly. So it's been just in a matter of a week. It's uh, fluctuated by like three hundred million from like eight hundred million to one billion, and then so on. So in uh, I just want to see. No, in um, in value. So essentially what I did in my calculation is I zeroed out the Bitcoin, the debt on the balance sheet, and then whatever was remaining to me is kind of what the market is placing on the valuation of the actual business. Mm. And that has fluctuated a whole lot, which I think it'll be a fun exercise because if you really are interested in the business and you don't mind the Bitcoin exposure... There might be some opportunities to get the business on the cheap in the future if there's really an outflow of the people that were using it as a proxy for Bitcoin exposure to now spot Bitcoin ETF. I think it's entirely people going for the balance sheet. Like, I, I don't know a whole lot about the original business, yeah. but I know it's legacy tech that has lots of churn and no growth. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's. Yeah, I think I, I agree with for the most part, I have to dig more in the business. I think it's a bit better than people give it credit for. But yeah, it's definitely legacy, but they seem to be evolving with the time. But the growth is definitely not massive. But that, that'll be another segment. But just a, a little preview. I, you know, sometimes you get into rabbit holes and start uh, looking at stuff. That's kind of what I ended up doing. Now we'll go on to the last segment here that was actually planned, not impromptu or like I just did. So why I started the position in Tourmaline. So the ticker is TOU.TO. So I'm just going to give a overview here. I'll give some more information for our joint TCI subscribers when I do the monthly update for the full reasoning behind it. But at a high level, this is why I did it. So the main reason I started the position here is that I wanted to have more exposure to the oil and gas industry in my portfolio. I already own Canadian natural resources and they do produce some natural gas. I'm well aware of that, but it's not a major part of their business compared on the oil portion. Now, Tourmaline is the largest natural gas producer in Canada. So Definitely by doing that, I know I'm getting more exposure to natural gas. And natural gas prices are quite low right now after spiking when Russia invaded Ukraine at the start of 2022. For, you know, in case uh, people are not aware, essentially Russia is a large producer of natural gas and they were sending that over to Europe. So clearly with the tensions and the invasion of Ukraine, it really spiked uh, natural gas prices. And what's putting downward pressure on gas prices right now now is the fact that Europe is expected to have a warmer winter, which should lower natural gas demand as being one of the largest consumer regions in the world of natural gas. According to the International Energy Agency, so the IEA, worldwide natural gas consumption has more than tripled since the 1970s. It has also increased by more than 30% since the early 2010s. It's the consumption has definitely plateaued a little bit in recent years since 2020, but I think that's going to be a more short-term thing as long as production and distribution, and distribution I think is key here, is able to keep up with demand. The reason why I think it's short-term is because there's going to be more of a push convert cold fire plants to natural natural gas plants and i know you're more aware of the process than i am here for converting those but that's essentially because natural gas is a much cleaner uh, fuel than uh, coal is now before i continue anything you wanted to add no i'm just kind of educating myself a little bit more about the business even though i know it's a 20 billion in market cap company here you know it's not ones that I look at a lot, but I know a lot of really smart people that think that this is one of the best assets in the space. And so, well, I like a lot of smart people and now including you. So I'm just kind of diving into that right now, both with what you're talking and on FinChat with uh, some of the KPIs and the, and the income statement here. 
Yeah, yeah, and feel free to add some at the end. So from what I've read, natural gas emits around 50% less uh, CO2 emissions than coal. And we've seen a a pretty sharp increase in coal uh, production, at least in the last year, year and a half, just because there's... For a lot of countries, there's not really other alternatives right now. And to me, it's just a low-hanging fruit, right, to be able to convert these to natural gas. I know natural gas has had some bad wrap for people that want to reduce uh, global emissions. But at the end of the day, it's actually a, a much better option than uh, some of the, the things we're using right now. And because of the potential for future remand, demand and the current low price of natural gas and geopolitical conflicts, of course, the Russia-Ukraine conflict I'm thinking here, I think there are big tailwinds for natural gas and that Termaline is really well positioned to capitalize on that and return more money to shareholders, mostly in the form of dividends. Now, speaking of dividends, they pay an increasing dividend of zero of 28 cents per share. It's a quarterly dividend, so it yields just shy of 2% right now. And they have a 13% payout ratio for a regular dividend. And I'll put emphasis on that regular uh, dividend because they also have had a recent history of paying a large special dividend. However, I'm not factoring that in because special dividends, and we've talked about that before, these are, you know, not guaranteed, not that you know, regular reoccurring dividends are guaranteed, but special dividends, especially, you should not expect these on a regular basis. I'm not putting my thesis on that. That would just be a little bonus here. And I actually really like the fact that they do the special dividend strategy because it gives them way more flexibility. The market puts less emphasis on a super high dividend yield and putting pressure on management to keep that dividend and not cut it. So I I really like it. I mean, Costco is a good example. They do that special dividend every three, four, five years. I can't remember the uh, exact interval, but they, they do do that. And the last reason why I really like Termaline here is that they don't have much debt on the balance sheet. They reduced it a couple of years ago. So I think it's a really big advantage advantage for them in a higher rate environment and they just generate tons and tons of cash flow and obviously they will pay from what i've seen they tend to pay the special dividend just based on what the free cash flow is so that's a very reasonable approach i think i actually wish more companies would do it that way where they don't tie themselves to high and unsustainable dividend that's the best dividend policy that i've been praising that dividend policy for a long time where it's like we pay a conservative growing dividend with a low payout ratio on our free cash flow. And when we have a ton of cash sitting on the balance sheet that we are not able to deploy fast enough, instead of having to pay that out for like, instead of paying that to you over the last eight quarters and putting our business in a position we don't want to be in because we are a cyclical company we do it when it makes sense and when it's a, this this is a win-win for the company it's a win for the investors i think that that's that's the the best dividend policy so i've just been kind of doing some digging here because i was really curious about natural gas consumption by sector so today uh, 2022 for the us we have yes we we see since the 50s all the way through to now natural gas consumption has been certainly on the rise and um you know if it, it is cyclical there's no doubt about that you have long long periods of, of drawdowns and then it comes back but if we look at it here today it is electric this is largest to smallest electric power industrial residential so so heating and then commercial and then transportation okay so you got power and then industry and then buildings, and then transportation. So that's 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 it in order. Now, I honestly thought buildings combined was going to be more than than uh, electric power, but they're very similar combined. I'm very bullish on the increase of, especially in the U.S. and, and globally, not in Canada, but outside of Canada. Essentially, I'm very bullish on electric power uh, consumption of natural gas in the next 10 to 15 years and very bearish after. So I'm I'm fl- I'm flip-flopping between I know that it's going to get a lot higher 
before it becomes a lot lower. The reason for that is Canada has mostly, mostly, uh, with an asterisk, pivoted away from coal, coal-fired power plants and and moved them to natural gas-fired power plants, combined cycle plants as a, as replacements for mostly peaking power, depending on the province. That is base load power in the U.S., and there's still a ton, a ton of coal. Depending on even where you are, like it, the most of the grid is coal. Think of like uh, Texas, Tennessee. I'd have to look at the long list, but there's a ton of coal-fired power plants in the U.S. and broadly India, emerging markets, big time. So those plants, a huge, huge priority is to switch them to natural gas-fired combined cycle baseload power plants. So that's a huge tailwind for the next like 15 years and a potential, you know, existential threat after it. That's a that's really hard for me to think about and like really hard to kind of value and, and project into the future. So that makes for an interesting predicament. Yeah, and and the one like the driving factor with me investing in that is yeah, I think there's definitely at least the medium long term, maybe not the super long term. I think there's some really good prospects, and I just think the market is overly bearish on the price of natural gas right now. I mean, it's almost at historical lows, and whenever you have historical lows for commodity like this, I mean, if you have a long enough time horizon, there's a good chance that it will turn around and go up just based on the uh, pattern of consumption for the world. And I think I'm pretty in agreement with you when it comes to that. I think when you think probably more than 10, 15 years down the line, I think a lot of at least the electricity generation will be taken offline in uh, favor of nuclear. I think we're really, I think nuclear will be eating a big chunk of that. Obviously, I think there's wind, there's wind, solar, all other kinds. Maybe there's going to be progression in geothermal to power plants. I know those are still technologically, I think there's some issues with the drilling to get deep enough to be able to get enough heat to, to make those available at a wider scale. But then again, I think, you know, probably the next five years, I think it's a really good bet in my opinion. And I'm trying to equal weight my bet between uh, Canadian natural resources and Termaline to have some exposure to to the price of oil and natural gas. I think those are probably two of the best assets when it comes to oil and gas in, in Canada. So I think I think you're in a good spot there. You know how I feel about commodities. I, I hate the yeah. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I hate the lack of lack of pricing power, and I hate the fact that I have to get two things right. I have to get the supply predicted somewhat right, or at least directionally right, and then I think I have to get the demand right. I think the demand is super easy to kind of map out over the next fifteen years, and really, really hard to map out over the next 25, 30 years. Which is kind of a straight, straight, because those, those two numbers, you know, in the grand scheme of things are not that far off from each other, even though, of course, these are massively long term predictions. And then on the supply side, like that, that, that chart you're showing of, of all the production between OECD, Europe, Asia, uh, including China, Middle East, Africa, Americas. It seems to be going up in one certain direction. <laughs> so maybe that, maybe that is a little yeah. bit easier to map out. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that, that's my thesis behind it. Obviously, I'm not like putting, you know, it's not a 50% allocation or anything like that. It's a still a relatively small allocation, but big enough that if it does pan out, uh, it'll do quite well. It won't wreck me if it doesn't. And I think it's a good balance to my portfolio. I think that's really the way I see it is trying to balance out and having some exposure to certain commodities like this to be able to have a resilient portfolio in different kind of environments. So that's really what I've kind of shifted in the last two years. But again, I've said it time and time again, I'm still predominantly in equities. So clearly that will be driving most of my returns. But And these are equities, but they're commodity equities. So they'll be more driven by by the price of their commodities and obviously how well the business are doing. But I think these are two of the, the top names when it comes to natural gas for Tourmaline and the Canadian natural resources for oil, oil production. We'll wrap this up. But my last comment here is I'm, I am now looking at the dividend history on FinChat <laughs> and the, the thing that you sent me, the quarterly 
they move that special div a lot more, like pretty frequently, like is it almost every, yeah, they do. every year. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. But you can see that, you know, when prices spike because of the uh, Russia invasion in Ukraine, the obviously the price of natural gas spiked and their profits and free cash will also spike. So they had it, I think, what, like around $2 yeah. a couple times or four times in the year, three, four times. And now last year was down to a dollar. So that's why I'm saying, look, I just see it as a bonus. It's been pretty frequent in recent years. But even the fact that it's been frequent, I mean, it went from $2 to a dollar. So you can't really, I think you just have to be careful counting on that special dividend and just see it as... Like it's the same thing as if you have a job, right? And I know most people don't do that, but if you have a bonus tied to your performance, I think it's best to always see that as an actual bonus, not as guaranteed income. I know a lot of people kind of embed the bonus in what their salary is. I always find that a little bit dangerous myself. I try to forget about the bonus, see it as what it actually is. Maybe I'm just too conservative. I don't know, but that's how I see things. I really want to see more pub- public companies adopt this dividend policy. You know, this dividend policy, the Costco dividend policy, it just makes too much sense. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It just makes way too much sense. I think more people should adopt it. Thanks for listening to today's show. We really appreciate you. We are here Mondays, Thursdays. Well, Simone's here Monday to Thursdays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here and Mondays. as you were saying that, the dividend policy, I'm like, we're talking about you, Intel, but. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Take notes, folks. Yeah, we are here Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, Simone's here Mondays and Thursdays. I'm here Mondays. Dan Kent is, is with the is with Simone on Thursdays. And if you're somewhat new to the show, I was realized I was thinking about this yesterday on the plane. If you're somewhat new to the show, well, welcome. Happy you're here. We get a lot of new listeners, typically at the end of, at beginning of the year. And uh, we have the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast Show, which you can go type into your podcast player and put that in that's hosted by another Dan and Nick and they're doing a great job over at the Canadian Investor Podcast and the the, the rationale now for having different hosts on the on this show is there is two different styles of show there is a a news and earnings that comes out on Thursday and there is a kind of you know what you heard today you know more kind of uh, evergreen type content that comes out on Mondays that I I enjoy quite a bit more so <laughs> pivoted over to that and so uh yes this if you, if you are new here today that gives you kind of a lay of the land of, of all the content we're producing with the real estate show and the two different styles of shows on the this podcast feed and of course if you have not smashed that follow button or given us a rating you know you can give a, a nice dopamine hit to our hosts uh, for the low price of zero dollars by subscribing and giving us a show rating. Yeah, yeah, it really helps us out, and uh, yeah, it boosts. Uh, it makes us feel good as a bonus. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> dopamine hit for the cost of zero dollars. Hey, that sounds pretty good. We'll see you in a few days. Thanks for listening. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simon may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.